This is our fourth lecture, Kotochuk's lecture on press freedom. And uh, it's going to be our last lecture this academic year, depending on the health and availability of Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, there is a chance that next year, uh, the final speaker, we're going to hold him here. And uh, this time I would like to uh, introduce our fourth speaker, Adam Bolton, whom I'm sure all of you know. He is a political editor of Sky News. And, uh, he uh, was also writing and published in a number of uh, newspapers and magazines, including The Guardian, New Statement, New Statement, The Sunday Times, and many others. He was also um, invited to participate in such programs as The Newsnight and Have I Got News For You. Uh, during uh, 100 uh, days of uh, Barack Obama presidency, the first 100 days, he was also posted in the, uh, to the United States to cover it. And as you know, uh, Adam Bolton hosted the second debate in 2010 during uh, uh, the elections in, in the UK. I think without further ado, I would like to uh, invite Adam to talk about uh, an important issue which is uh, media freedom in digital age. Thank you very much indeed, Galina. Thank you for that. Welcome. Thank you for turning up. I haven't always had such luck in Oxford. I, I gave a speech about 10 years ago where there was a rail strike, um, uh, where there were two people in the room. So uh, uh, I, I brought my own crowd to a certain extent um, this time around. And another time, um, uh, I, I speak at the union, and uh, I thought I had a bit of a triumph. And then I was leaving, I heard one Don say to another, that was the speech of a real media thug. Uh, so I'll do my best to oblige this evening. Uh, I mean, there, there is a, for me, there's a triple significance uh, in being here. I was at this college, so I, I guess that makes me in the technical term a member of the House. I'm sure I'll be correct if I got the uh, terminology wrong. I'm also, of course, a working journalist, although most of my career has been in television rather than the uh, rather more beleaguered press. Uh, and I'm also uh, on the... Uh, theme of this lecture series, uh, someone who's been lucky enough and indeed uh, old enough to have covered uh, the era of Perestroika and Glasnost during the 1980s and to have encountered uh, the great Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev both then and subsequently. I confess though I'm not a very good uh, old boy to any of the institutions that have nurtured me, doubtless because I've had sort of near toxic levels of the new Labour mantra, the future not the past, drummed into me. Um, and um, I, uh, uh, maybe that, you know, judging by my uh, non-attendance at lectures uh, during the time I was here at Christchurch and worked out that uh, the only way to get me to go to a lecture was actually to get me to give it. Um, and uh, of course I'm very apprehensive speaking here with the word bore in the title, so I'm trying not to go on too long. Um, I should say though that uh, not being a, a, an old boy meant that I missed a recent celebration to mark the retirement of Peter Conrad, who was uh, one of my main tutors here, along with Christopher Butler and Richard Hamer. And um, I'm very sorry about that, because uh, one of the lucky things uh, in my life, I think, was uh, having those three as my main tutors in English. Uh, I did actually write to Peter Conrad to apologise uh, and he replied, uh, your bout with Alastair Campbell captured the spirit of my tutorials. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I took that as a compliment. Now, uh, 
since Oxford, I've sort of left English literature behind uh, uh, to my regret. But uh, facing the idea of giving a lecture in, in, in this city, I thought I'd better turn back. And uh, sort of a counterpoint to what I've got to say this evening is uh, um, English literature's most celebrated uh, defense of the right of free speech, uh, taken from 1644, Ari Oppenkittika. A speech by Mr. John Milton for the liberty of unlicensed printing uh, to the Parliament of England. And I'm going to argue actually that I think first principles haven't changed very much, although perhaps uh, God is rather more absent in my thoughts than it was in Milton's. And I think it's important to note that as Milton made clear, he was talking about printing, he was talking about uh, the press concerned with. Journalism then uh, published books uh, and pamphlets, uh, and it would uh, please Peter Conrad, I think, that he distributed his speech to Parliament uh, mimetically uh, as an unlicensed pamphlet, uh, sort of outliving or living up to uh, his own standards. Now, this, of course, is one of the few places where uh, there are people who can probably match Milton's classical and religious learning, so I hasten to say I'm not one of them. This is not going to be a lecture about Milton. Uh, even although uh, I did borrow the tag uh, for the title of this lecture, uh, Above All Liberties, and I'll uh, come on to that towards the end. These are, of course, very different times, but 367 years later, uh, we do seem to be talking about an English Parliament again, uh, and um, I believe that the hacking scandal, the establishment of the Levison Inquiry, do mean that the idea of licensing and further curbing the free press is once again stalking the land. And I would argue that Milton's ideas, he talks repeatedly about the wars of truth and the threat of a possible reduction of the liberty of printing to the few and the dangers uh, to and from a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed, fantastic words. I mean, I think all those are, are beacons which can still actually uh, guide us through. And, you know, Milton, who was above all a, a champion of Reformation in many senses, he had faith in, in truth. I'm going to be talking a lot about that. Uh, and he believed that truth was best established through clashing with opposing claims, not being protected uh, from them uh, by the well-meaning uh, and the paternalistic, um, as he put it, that all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth. So truth be in the field, we do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. And I think that those who would like to see a tougher enforcement of rights and privacy should really reflect on those words. Indeed, I would go further. I mean, I believe that for truth to prevail, the proper exercise of journalism may require that the bad or undesirable are revealed along with the good, uh, and that which is of interest to the public along with that which is deemed by some higher authority to be in the public interest. Uh, indeed, I think that self-censorship and the exercise of moral judgment should be secondary to the prime task of journalism, which, as I see it, is to report facts and their context, uh, leading to consumers, readers, viewers, listeners, uh, to make their own judgments about the information uh, which we have imparted. Which really brings me on to uh, Gorbachev. I mean, I was one of those who covered Mrs. Thatcher's famous pre-election visit to the Soviet Union in 1987. And the issue for us was not whether Mikhail Gorbachev was a good or a bad man. Our concern was that the Prime Minister famously declared he was a man she could do business with 
and we wanted to see what would arise from that, what was changing in Russia. And just being there and being allowed to report freely was, was proof of uh, the openness of restructuring that Gorbachev kept talking about, being allowed to travel to the outer suburbs to interview the Sharansky family, uh, or to follow Margaret Thatcher into meetings uh, from which, frankly, if we'd been back home, we would certainly have been barred. Uh, on, the, on that particular occasion, Mrs. Thatcher acquired a chic uh, aquascutum Cossack wardrobe. Um, but when she got back home, she was characteristically down to earth. Down to earth. She said, it was a remarkable experience, but it's marvelous to be back, uh, reassuring her constituents in Finchley. And of course, that didn't dash the spirit of that period of Soviet and, uh, and Russian reformation. Uh, fantastically impressive open-mindedness at the Reykjavik summit in 1986, when um, Reagan and Gorbachev overnight discussed the ridding the world of nuclear weapons completely. Although, uh, in the kind of balance between high and low journalism, uh, which I'm going to talk about, it was uh, a new story of worldwide importance, uh, which I was delayed from reporting because uh, back in the London studio, David Frost was doing magic tricks with Yuri Geller. Um, and then, of course, going on to Moscow in 1988, amazing openness, uh, uh, when Boris Yeltsin himself responded to sort of scribbled British TV requests for an interview with the mayor of Moscow, which we never thought uh, were going to happen. Uh, and then, of course, Gorbachev himself, uh, I remember his first news conference at the uh, summit in, in Geneva uh, with Reagan, where people were killing uh, to get a seat. Um, he went on for four hours, uh, sort of consciousness raising. And from then on, the uh, senior anchors left it to their um, junior producers to attend Gorbachev news conferences. Uh, and, of course, monitored them on the uh, feed. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the true values of the freedoms which we're talking about in this country have obviously been highlighted by what's happened in Russia since then. Uh, and I know that Luke Harding uh, gave the Gorbachev lecture on that subject. I mean, for me, uh, the change was really underlined um, when I was uh, strolling uh, through the halls of the Kremlin on, on one political visit. And I, I won't forget the uh, look of fear in the eyes of the flunkies as they... Uh, flatten themselves uh, against the walls. Uh, it wasn't me, I happened to be walking along with um, Andrew Marr, uh, who, as you know, is a Vladimir Putin look-alike. <laughs> now, now, looking at the um, impressive list of speakers been here, I've been wondering uh, what I could add, since uh, much of the analysis, not all of it, I would agree with. And I suppose it's that I'm really an exhibit, uh, a journalist still working, still working in this country, and what's more, who for the past 23 years has worked for an organisation, Sky News, uh, which is ultimately managed by Rupert Murdoch, and News Corporation. Now, in that time, I sort of worked at both ends of the market. I've interviewed presidents, prime ministers, Nobel Prize winners. Uh, but I also you know, interviewed Katie Price when she was still called Jordan and, and Nancy Delolio. Um, I've asked cabinet ministers when they're going to resign, and I've persuaded the freshly bereaved and the terrorised to go on television. And I make no apology, I mean, I'm proud of working at both ends, all ends, of the news market because I believe that the whole spectrum contributes to the audience's greater understanding uh, of the world we live in. And, and ironically, and I see David Levy's here in the audience, I mean, I, 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 though I'm very much from the private sector mostly, I wouldn't have any quarrel with our purpose 
uh, in uh, the media being to educate and inform and entertain as uh, Lord Greaves made the original BBC's uh, mission statement. And what I'm going to do, as Milton was doing uh, back uh, four centuries ago, is to examine the freedom of the press. And of course, in his time, it's important to note that there were no other media. Uh, today, uh, abuse, I think, is still most uh, often associated with the behaviour of the press, of the newspapers. But my point is, is that inevitably the remedies, whether they're whips or restraints, uh, which are going to affect the practice of all journalism, uh, as of course they should if we want to live in a system of common law. And so I'm going to be talking about the issue of press freedom as it relates to the media as a whole. That doesn't mean that uh, Britain's news media face exactly the same constraints. Um, Milton was campaigning against the licensing of the print, and indeed the print has not been licensed. Um, magazines and newspapers, books, all swim, single swim as commercial ventures. Uh, except uh, Swiss Sink mainly at the moment, although uh, there are some generous, uh, munificent uh, rich proprietors. Uh, and it's actually the newer media, the electronic media, television and radio, uh, which operates under official license. And we've seen since the arrival of uh, electronic media a completely different evolution on, on either sides of the Atlantic. In the United States, the airways were seen primarily as a way to make money uh, but in the United Kingdom, the government wanted to control access to the airwaves, first with the radio and television monopoly of the BBC, then the licensed duopoly with ITV uh, and permitting commercial radio in the 1970s. And really, multi-channel television only started at the beginning of the 1980s with Channel 4 uh, and TVAM, the breakfast franchise. And regu reg regulation uh, continued to operate throughout all that period, even with the arrival in 1989 of satellite television in the form of uh, the officially sanctioned uh, BSB and the uh, uninvited uh, piratical, if you like, but legal Sky. And even after there was a shotgun merger for commercial reasons between Sky uh, and, B and BSB and to form BSB Sky B, we continue to be subject to the same jurisdictions as the BBC and ITV, which is the broadcasting and competition laws both in this country and uh, of the EU. And ultimately, the penalty you face is the loss of license to broadcast. And so we all have to follow codes uh, of conduct on matters such as privacy, decency, political balance, fairness, and intrusion. The only difference is that in the first instance, the BBC regulates itself, while the rest of us are regulated by Ofcom, but um, the enforced values are the same. So, you know, when people, in, by contrast in America, uh, you have tabloid excesses of, of uh, American television. I suppose these days people talk mostly about our sister station, Fox News Channel, and that can be contrasted to the very state approach of uh, mainstream newspapers, the New York Times, this is known as the Grey Lady uh, for nothing. Um, and so the popular aphorism in broadcasting circles is that the, in America they have responsible newspapers and irresponsible television. In the UK, by law, it's the other way around. We have responsible television, radio, and irresponsible papers. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in this, but what's often overlooked uh, is that it wouldn't be possible 
for television in this country to be irresponsible. I mean, the British version of Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh simply wouldn't be legal here, nor, incidentally, would be the so-called foxification of Sky News, even if it was an idea which made commercial sense, which it doesn't. And it wouldn't have been possible for a British television company to carry out the sting operation uh, which recently uh, captured the business secretary, Vince Cable, declaring war on Rupert Murdoch. Uh, Ofcom and the BBC both have strict guidelines on clandestine reporting uh, and recording, and it wouldn't have passed those. So we do, un in television, we do operate under greater strictures than print does, but at the same time, we all face the common commercial adversary, which is the competition which has come about from... Uh, uh, the new means of communication online, smartphones, other digital devices. And uh, in the first wave, that has had a bigger impact uh, on print. But, and this is another important uh, thing to remember, uh, it's practically impossible in television news in this country to make a profit, even although British people uh, consume media more intensively than anyone else in the world. Uh, as you know, uh, the reality is that the estimates are that by 2015, the internet will account for 85% of all classical advertising. Pressures on television uh, are there as well. It's evident in the way that ITV has dramatically cut its commitment and budget for news and current affairs. Uh, and even in spite of those cuts, or perhaps because of them, I would argue, uh, the combined ITV company still struggles for critical mass, both financially and in terms of impact. Both Channel 4 and Channel 5 have questioned uh, whether it's viable for them to live up to their regulatory obligations, uh, and both channels have squeezed news budgets, although obviously Channel 5 under Richard Desmond has done that rather more spectacularly than Channel 4. Over at BBC, the licence fee has been frozen, now, I know in his contribution to these lectures, the Director-General Mark Thompson made some very worthy points about investigative journalism, but I think it's fair to say the examples he picked were pretty few and far between over a period of decades. That was good journalism, but in reality these days, Panorama, which used to be the flagship of uh, BBC Current Affairs, is more often a kind of light infotainment programme. Uh, and as we know, there are constant rumours that Newsnight is under threat as well. And even if you regard the BBC as your gold standard, you have to accept that its existence uh, means that because the BBC is free uh, at the point of use, uh, thanks to the compulsory levy on licence fee payers, there isn't effectively any market for television news in this country. If you can get the BBC News Channel free, it's difficult to set a competitive price for Sky News. This is very different from America, where people take a small slice of cable subscriptions and all channels, uh, Fox News Channel, CNN and MSNBC, make a, ha a healthy profit, even although those last two, uh, frankly, don't have much of an audience. So, in order to have British television news, uh, they basically it needs to be paid for by a bigger uh, general media and entertainment company, and that is something which applies to the independent television channels on terrestrial to Sky uh, and to the BBC. Sky News has expanded because we have increased the revenues which we've earned, but the reality is 
that over the 23 years of Sky News' existence, uh, B Sky B has invested, that means sunk, over a billion pounds uh, uh, since 1989, and uh, that's what I mean about uh, needing uh, generous proprietors. I mean, in the early days of Sky News, used to meet colleagues from Wapping on the doorstep uh, who would jokingly ask, can we have our money back? Um, things have improved a bit since then. Uh, had the merger with News Corporation gone ahead, Sky would have been the single most profitable uh, division uh, of uh, News Corporation, thanks to the entertainment channels and things like Sky Plus and Broadband. Uh, our profits are at over a billion pounds a year. Compare this to Rupert Murdoch, uh, recently telling the Culture Media and Sport Committee uh, that uh, the News of the World represents less than 1% or did represent less than 1% of his business. And again, you know, when you talk about markets, without Sky, the biggest contributor to uh, news corporation profits is actually Fox News Channel, which makes some 700 million a year. I don't want to boast about one medium overtaking another, but I do want to stress that we are all interdependent uh, in the practice of journalism. And that we managed to do it because proprietors are able to switch uh, resources from one overflowing pot to one empty one. And the two people I think who've understood this best in our time uh, have been uh, pretty much vilified. Uh, one of them is Rupert Murdoch, we'll come on to later. The other, of course, is uh, John Burt, uh, who brilliantly uh, repositioned the BBC to flourish in the digital age. At this point, I think we should note that, you know, all the Googles, Apples, Amazons, Yahoo's, Microsoft, Intel's, they haven't contributed any content, any fresh editorial material, uh, even although they've made billions processing what others made. So does it mean that the mutual dependence of the various news media, does that imply that we share the same interests, all moral codes, especially uh, on the matter of freedom? I mean, I certainly think it, it's wrong for a high-end journalist to be squeamish about what low-end journalists get up to. Does that amount to a justification? None of us would want to be justified by money earned from doing something we thought was wrong. Um, I mean, Milton did say, as good almost kill a man as kill a good book. But what about bad books? Why not suppress them? Milton, again, was pretty robust. So truth be in the field, we do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. He also doubted whether any would-be censors would have the ability to select wisely. Uh, it is not possible for man to sever the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the other fry. That must be the angel's ministry. And he made the point that if you simply go with the conventional wisdom of the day, you are simply speaking in but the language of the times that orthodoxy would exclude both innovation and also uh, drawing on the wisdom of the ancients. Now I think we should have a similar enthusiasm uh, for the truth, but we should also have a fitting modesty about whether we can ever capture it. And that, I think, is uh, why we need to keep our media free, because I don't think we know when we're hitting on the truth and when we're hitting on the inaccurate, when something is right or when something is wrong. And I'm going to try and talk in the remaining uh, minutes about two current issues um, that are really hitting the British media now uh, because I 
believe uh, that we don't need fresh uh, restrictions on the English media. I think the status quo anti-Leveson was working, is working, and that rather than curbs, we should, if anything, be wondering how we can make the media more free. And I want to do this in the context of two very big challenges uh, to the media. First, the impact of so-called unmediated digital means of communication, things like blogging, tweeting, social media, et al., and then the very specific and present difficulties which gave rise directly to the Leveson Inquiry. I mean, when we talk about press, radio, television, telephone, internet, as media and means of communication, but of course they're also pieces of technology. And I think too often we talk about the ethics of journalism disregarding the fact that much of what journalists do isn't dictated by a conscious and moral decision. Uh, as in the rest of life, we do things because we're able to and because technology enables us to. I mean, I, for example, worked for two companies which were startups that didn't exist before I joined them. But what's significant about TVM and Sky is that they were innovators doing that for the first time. It didn't exist before, either breakfast television or 24-hour rolling news. And they were able to do what they did for two reasons, relaxation of regulation and also uh, technological innovation, uh, which permitted their business moral models. Now, as people develop uses for technology, it's very often the way that the inventors uh, who brought up the them didn't, didn't, didn't concede, and they're very unforeseen consequences. Uh, for example, what's happening at the moment is the electronic media television is basically pushing the mass press out of bed because people get their information and news uh, primarily from television. <coughs> and at the same time, uh, print is suffering a double whammy of losing listings, classified advertising uh, online. So it's not a question of who wants yesterday's papers, it's really who wants tomorrow's papers. And this means that the press is having to reinvent itself uh, because nobody has managed to make simply migrating editorial content uh, onto the online uh, work, uh, with, the, with the partial exceptions of very specialist things like the Financial Times uh, and the Times Literary Supplement. And what print is having to do is to find new functions, both on screen and on paper, so that people who want to read it uh, still want to read it or indeed pay for it. Uh, general newspapers are finding it particularly hard to develop a product uh, which consumers won't substitute for somewhere else, online, often from a free source. But we are seeing one potential evolution uh, which started uh, before the internet, which is that as the mainstream electronic media push uh, the press out of that main job of reporting, a secondary function of analysing, extrapolating and commenting on the news uh, is emerging. And, you know, the reality is we're all bombarded with so many facts these days. I think Thomas Pynchon a long time ago talked about uh, entropy, that we become morally ambivalent and unable to tell right from wrong or fact from fiction. And in that area, print journalists can save us by deploying their traditional skills uh, to make sense of the information with which we are being deluged. And so I don't believe it's any accident that the 
through recent stories where printers performed, outperformed the broadcast media, uh, MPs' expenses and WikiLeaks were both ones where newspapers were really able to perform the function of kind of super archivists, uh, sifting through the substance from millions of pages. Um, and uh, I think it's important to note that when WikiLeaks tried to go it alone through the mass dump of the second wave of information, without the careful scrutiny of The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Monde and the others, it didn't nearly have the same impact. Likewise, brilliantly nurtured and directed, the Telegraph's purloined CD-ROMs of expenses data are a gift that goes on giving, uh, as Liam Fox and Adam Werity know to their cost. And of course we should remember that in these cases, uh, data was stolen, money was paid, and in the case of WikiLeaks, at least one person has been imprisoned we know that the information disclosed was of great interest to the public and the consequences certainly of the MPs' expenses revelations were certainly in the public interest. But it remains an open question as far as uh, our regulators and uh, legislators are concerned whether the violation of the official sources themselves uh, was indisputably a good thing. And when the line is blurred between data protection and freedom of information, uh, we do rely on the print journalists for that skilled, aggressive, ag uh, professional aggregation of digital information. And rather than talk about regulating the internet or extending regulation over journalists, I think that our legislators should note that actually the traditional media, the mainstream media, are actually performing a function of trying to monitor and police what goes on on the web and uh, that we uh, should allow journalists to mediate what we consume on the web because we trust them. If there isn't that relationship of trust with, if you like, a kind-marked or respected news outlet, uh, then we're nothing. Um, as um, Ian Hislop uh, tartly remarked last week uh, to uh, a recent parliamentary committee hearing, the reason why you don't sell newspapers is because nobody believes you. Everybody, he argued, believes private eye. And that relationship of trust, of course, is very close to the truth uh, that Milton uh, was talking about. It seems there's so much information out there now, and it seems that showing and telling is a basic human instinct. Today, thanks to web and phone cams and social networks, it's infinitely easier for anyone to communicate. And as elsewhere, technology is transforming our own mores, our own views of what we're prepared to accept or not. For example, Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, has even suggested that young people are abandoning the idea of privacy as a, quote, social norm. People have gotten comfortable not only sharing more information and different kinds. He informed last year's Crunches Award ceremony that uh, that social norm is just something that has evolved over time. For example, for reasons we can all understand, one of the absolute bans in British broadcasting, the ultimate violation of privacy, has been showing what we call the moment of death. Uh, that's why you always get the media hoo-ha whenever someone makes a documentary uh, about filming euthanasia. Yet, what's changed? We all saw Gaddafi's final moments. If you wanted to, you could go online and see them all over again and again, uh, probably back to music. But in spite of that, I don't know any 
television newsroom where there was not long and earnest consideration given to what should and should not be shown or how many times about Gaddafi. And we had these similar conversations even about the footage of New York's Twin Towers going down. You may not always agree with the decisions that are taken by broadcasters, but I hope that you would trust us to behave reasonably and responsibly in the use of footage. If you don't, you know who we are, you know where we live, and you can hold us to account. You can do that with professional media organisations, but you can't do it with the overwhelmingly anonymous and pseudonymous contributors to the blogosphere and the Twitter sphere. We, in the mainstream media, are not expected to get angry, partisan or unfair. It seems to me the very opposite of the tone which characterises many of these citizen posts. Milton understood this well. He recommended that those who want to engage in constructive debate should not be allowed to hide in anonymity. <coughs> Arioca Pogetica opposed licensing which would prevent the unregistered from publishing at all, but it supports the existing parliamentary order that, quotes, no book be printed unless the printers and the author's name, or at least the printers, be registered. Journalists working for the mainstream media have come to understand what the new media can do and to use them to find both new sources of information and new consumers for our work. There was, it has to be said, an initial period of anarchy when a number of journalists tweeted and blogged before they thought. Uh, but now I think major news organisations are imposing codes on their employees and basically uh, these insist that you should imply, apply the same standards of judgement and attribution to informal social media as you do uh, with mainstream work, albeit in a less formal context. Again, uh, what we're seeing, certainly at Sky News, and I believe it's at other organisations as well, is that having talked about different audiences for different platforms, iPads, electronic, um, uh, television, online, uh, we've actually found that it's a consistent audience. You're actually talking to the same people, setting so the same standards. What you put out under your brand is very important. As we all know uh, from the Arab Spring and this summer's English riots, uh, SMS, and particularly BBM, chief and individually directable Blackberry uh, messengers, uh, were central to mobilizing street demonstrations and in BBM's case, so-called flash mobs. Um, and we also discovered that it's very difficult to turn off those networks because guess what, the authorities are using them as well for their own purposes. And what we did at Sky News in the summer in August uh, was to use those new media to try and extend our journalism. Um, messaging services became very important uh, information sources and we digested what was being said so that we could tell our viewers what was going on. And this was reflected in actually the highest audiences we've ever recorded uh, at the news channel uh, during this August. And we also tried to use the new technology uh, to report in a fresh way. So for example, our journalist Mark Stone used his iPhone to go out and interview and film rioters near his home in a way that simply would have been possible uh, with a traditional camera crew. And we also tried to use non-television platforms such as the iPad and, and the website 
to go to places we couldn't go before. Another one of our journalists, uh, Tom Palmenter, not only interviewed rioters, but he kept up a web chat with viewers on what the rioters and indeed uh, he had done. A lot of people were wondering why he hadn't called the police. And uh, it's important to remember that it's a very different type of journalism that we don't any longer produce what you might call considered reports, edited, sub-edited, attempting to give you the definitive view uh, of what has already taken place. Many of us, many of us including me, are reporting and analysing news live as it's happening, not always in the right place. I mean, only last night I was standing on a rooftop overlooking Cannes Harbour, contributing to our coverage of the vote in Athens uh, of the Greek Parliament. And when you work live, you have no script uh, and only rudimentary editorial guidance. And your audience has to trust you and to trust you to try and get it right. Most of the time we do, but we do constantly remind our audience that we're not omniscient and we attribute our sources to telling them where and when we're getting our information. And when we make mistakes, we admit them and correct them immediately. As, for example, most recently when we, with almost all the rest of the British media, muddled up the guilty and non-guilty verdicts announced late at night in Perugia in the trial of Amanda Knox. Uh, the uh, slogan, never wrong for long, uh, was jokingly coined uh, by the first head of Sky News. And although the inference that we are habitually wrong is unfair, uh, it does unlock underline that we're willing to correct ourselves. And again, this attitude is antithetical to those of uh, bloggers and tweeters. Uh, I mean, you know, you always know that people are trying to hoax you, and that's why we try and verify the information which we get from citizen journalists. I'm sure some of you followed Amina Abdullah Araf al-Omari, uh, the much-praised Syrian lesbian activist. Uh, who turned out to be Tom McMaster, a 40-year-old mature student at Edinburgh University. I mean, what motivates people to want this to be in public in that way? Uh, beats me. We always try and uh, verify our reporting. Even so, as I've already said, means of communication are in desperate competition with each other. Individual mediums need to define what they do best. And, in an era, for example, of mass availability of digital recording, we in broadcast television have rediscovered that our unique selling point is the live event, whether that's sport, talent competitions, reality television, or indeed uh, prime ministerial debates. Now, as far as print is concerned, it may be inevitable, but newspapers are understandably reluctant to surrender their former role, which was breaking the news, even though the electronic media do it far better. And in my view, desperate competition, or at any rate, desperation, seems to be the best explanation of what appears to have happened in the news of the world. Some people at Wapping were prepared to take enormous and seemingly illegal risks for very small gain. Just ask yourself, what sort of stories were likely to be got by the hacking of the phone messages of a missing schoolgirl Nothing of primary importance, I would argue, just some original colour that you hadn't already seen on the telly. Now, clearly such behaviour was madness, 
But the essential point about the alleged misconduct of News International, centered on the news of the world, is that the system is working without the need for further regulation of the press. Most investigations are still underway, but any informal coalition of police, uh, lawyers, parliamentarians, and journalists uh, from rival organisations has ensured that there have been very severe consequences for the people and the organisations implicated in the culture that benefited from illegal phone hacking and payments to the police. I mean, remember, after the first round of investigations, two people, a journalist and a private investigator, went to prison. The editor of the News of the World lost his job and subsequently lost his new employment as the Prime Minister's Director of Communications. And there were, of course, vastly more serious consequences which followed the revelations at the end of the Millie Dollar murder trial. Rupert Murdoch, as he said himself, was humbled. The news of the world was shut down, meaning redundancy for all staff from the editor downwards. The multi-billion dollar merger of News Corporation and BSKB was blocked. The current and previous chief executives of News International lost their jobs. So did the legal team. The commissioner of the Metropolitan Police resigned. By my count, at least 18 people have been arrested in the course of Operation Wheating, looking into phone hacking in Operation Elfton, looking into payments to the police. One million pounds was paid to the Dowler family, plus a further million personally from Rupert Murdoch for both personal compensation and payments to charity. Other compensation payments run into millions already, and again, according to Operation Wheating, uh, nearly 5,800 people could have had their phone messages hacked and be in line for financial redress. The law has been broken and those responsible are facing uh, the consequences both legally and more widely. Uh, the police and parliament are investigating and uh, the police uh, are also investigating the police in the case of Durham Constabulary, so Constabulary in the Met. Uh, or as Jude will put it, quis custodiet, ipsos custodiet, bit of that in there. Uh, so why do we need the Leveson inquiry? Uh, Kevin McKenzie gave the glib answer uh, that it was there to hide the Prime Minister's embarrassment with his close links to Andy Coulson and his friendship with other prominent people at News International. Uh, and uh, it's also true, I think, that uh, MPs and peers so recently and acutely painfully under media scrutiny for their own misbehaviour, couldn't resist the chance to get their own back at their tormentors. Certainly, I think there was some spite, as Christopher Mayer elegantly pointed out here a fortnight or so ago. The facts certainly don't support the cross-party consensus that the Press Complaints Commission, quote, has failed. The big concern is the argument abroad that press and media have become too powerful, too intrusive and too unaccountable and that new controls should be asserted over us. As Mark Thompson remarked here, this is a dangerous period for British journalism. Now David Cameron set up the Leveson inquiry and then reassured a group of reporters he happened to be addressing that he had no intention of neutering the press. But there are others who would like to and you've heard from Two of them in this series, John Lloyd and Max Mosley, are both uh, very charming gents. Now, we can all agree that overclose relations between proprietors and politicians are undesirable and need to be closely monitored. We can probably mostly agree that super injunctions are a bad idea, 
even although judges would beg to, beg to differ. And what divides us is the question of privacy. And this argument, it seems to me, cuts to the heart of what journalism is all about. Uh, Evgeny Lebedev, uh, his definition of a, of a vigilant press has, uh, it's quite alluring to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. But I think it's probably too comfortable in itself in as much as it claims too much moral high ground. Not all journalism is un unambiguously virtuous, and not all its revelations discomfort the afflicted. I mean, just to give one example, you might think about revelations about benefit fraud. I believe facts are morally neutral, and they're the commodity we trade in. Our business is revelation, which is telling you something that you don't know, and preferably something that someone somewhere doesn't want you to know, because it would empower you. History and common sense tells us that personal relationships and appetites of influential people are inherent to what they do. And I believe we should be wary of any new obstacles which prevent them from being disclosed. I should say, I speak to someone whose own marital upheavals have been exposed on pages one, two, three, six, and seven of the Mail on Sunday, uh, with accompanying coverage of most other newspapers. In my case, our case, children, aged relatives, even local restaurateurs were pursued for comment. It's not pleasant. But if it reflects what is happening with reasonable accuracy, then I believe the personal issues themselves should be of greater concern uh, to the subjects than coverage of them. I've been making common cause with all sorts of journalism today, uh, so I'm going to briefly, uh, I don't want to single out any publication, particular publication, but you know, many people in public life have what they call their male moment. Uh, Tony Blair even admitted that he didn't name the male newspapers in his feral beasts attack on the media because though he meant them, he was afraid that they would go after his family. But it seems to me, however you may not like them, that the male's activities, uh, they do perform three healthy functions, which would presumably please readers of their back half. Um, first, they cheer up any readers who feel downtrodden that anyone who they might envy, fear, or look up to has feet of clay. Uh, whether it's a weight problem, a dispute with tradesmen, problems with relatives, or any other mundane daily trial. Secondly, I think the paper's attacks are one-day versions of the slaves um, reportedly employed at Roman triumphs to whisper in the victorious general's ear, remember, you're only a man. And thirdly, and most importantly, I think that the male, along with the rest of the press, is a self-appointed watchdog on those who would seek to abuse their position. Politicians, the rich, the powerful, film and television stars should, shouldn't have their phone messages hacked, of course, that's against the law. And if Hugh Grant phones the police to say he's been a victim of crime or mishap, the first responder to arrive shouldn't be a tabloid hack, somewhat unfortunate nickname in this context. Uh, Paying the police for tips is illegal too, although I would argue that the police should be more forthcoming in what they tell reporters, uh, since justice should be seen to be done. But the Hacked Off campaign and its supporters, including the likes of Hugh Grant, Steve Coogan and Max Mosley, seem to want to extend their right to protection under the law into something quite different, a right to be presented by the media to the public only in the way in which they want to be seen unless they break the law. And even then, 
friends of both Grant and Dominic Strauss-Kahn grumble about the public perp walk which they were subjected to when caught out in America. I think this is an insidious attempt by the rich and powerful to have their cake and eat it. They want to be rewarded richly for their work, they want to give interviews, they want to endorse causes, to influence opinion, to raise funds, but only on their terms and without criticism or investigation. I think such aspirations are undemocratic and almost fascist. The, le the less in individuals play a part in public life, then surely the more they are entitled to privacy. And any sensible privacy code protects the private citizen from disproportionate exposure. But those who seek public reward and influence surely have few rights to privacy beyond protections against physical intrusion into private spaces. <coughs> this is an argument well understood in America, but not here, as the costly injunctions secured almost exclusively by the wealthy and well-known clearly demonstrate. When I'm asked my advice to anybody in public life, and that includes people who appear on television by profession, is that if you are not willing for it to come out in public, don't do it. We may wish to live in a world of liberal tolerance in which people's sexual behaviour is disregarded. I, for one, am happy that politicians no longer have to leave office automatically if they're revealed to have had affairs, and Paddy Ashdown was probably an early example of that. And, of course, that they and other prominent people can be openly gay. Indeed, these days, it seems to be staying in the closet is what gets you into trouble. But, and has been pointed out already in this series, say that masochistic orgies are legal. But the other people involved in these activities have rights to talk about them, too, if they want to. And I don't believe there's any right not to be ashamed or shamed. Indeed, it's sometimes said both experiences can be a true tonic. This isn't saying that journalists should have total freedom to intrude into private life. As the European Convention on Human Rights says, everyone has the right to respect for private life, his home, his correspondence. And it's a right which is enforced by prohibitions of trespass, intrusion, and data protection. In addition, media organisations are accountable to their consumers, as I've already said, if they behave badly. The Press Complaints Commission, BBC and Ofcom all have detailed codes on privacy. But would a privacy law enshrining such codes help? In my view, a law imposing prior restraints or injunctions or prohibition of investigative techniques which are not already banned would be repressive and against the public interest, since it would protect those who might be abusing others. Milton agreed, if we think to regulate printing, thereby to rectify manners, we must regulate all recreation and pastimes, all that is delightful to man, he wrote. Going on to warn, we can grow ignorant again, brutish, formal and slavish, if deprived of free speech and the truth. Now, the human rights lawyer, Jeffrey Robertson, has, he opposes prior restraint, but he has proposed a civil tort of privacy, so that plaintiffs could seek redress in the courts in the same way that they do for libel. And he would base such a law on the existing codes uh, and balance it against the public interest. In theory, I think this is a reasonable proposal but it's got major practical problems. First of all, it would create lots of lucrative work for lawyers, but it would almost certainly become rich man's justice, since the, uh, just like the libel laws, especially given the current cuts and limitations being placed on legal aid and no win, no fee agreements. 
A more fundamental objection is that the British judicial system has never been enthusiastic about converting limited notions of the vexed concept of public interest into our own version of the American Bill of Rights. This isn't surprising. Just read them. The First Amendment of the US Constitution explicitly enshrines freedom of the press. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the speech or of the press, it states. But Article 10 of the ECHR extends no such protection to the media. It concerns the right of the individual, not the institution of the press, to freedom of expression without interference by public authority. And uh, I don't think Milton would like this very much. It states explicitly, this article shall not prevent states from requiring the licensing of broadcasting, television, or cinema enterprises. Fact is that in this country, a privacy law would not be balanced by equally strong protection of freedom of the press through a public interest offence, and we meddle at our peril. Milton, of course, constantly references his arguments back to classical and biblical authority. But I think it's fair to say that in modern times, the debate about the balance of rights between authority, the individual, and the media, then of course only print, began at the time of the English Revolution. Less than 150 years later, America had that First Amendment. Of course, our political evolution has been extra-constitutional. And like most of the rest of the body politic, freedom of the press exists not as a right, but as an understanding produced from an informal nexus of assumptions, prejudices, and common law. The fourth estate, which may now be taken to include all the mainstream media, is recognized informally as a power in the land. But in this country, it has neither formal rights nor formal responsibilities. Instead, rights are asserted and responsibilities lived up to through a code of self-regulation enforced by the market. The reader and the listener and the viewer is absolutely right to consume or not to consume and to use freedom of speech to criticize what we do. We are nothing unless they empathize with us, want to hear from us, want to trust us. Ultimately, Milton's truth and our trust have common roots. Truth and the free media will both prosper if we live by the paramount right Milton demanded. Give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. <laughs>